The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 15. Hello, and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. This week, we reach the first example of one of the most important tools Shakespeare uses in Hamlet, the soliloquy. Given their importance within this play, I've chosen at least for this episode not to split up the text, and as such, this instalment will be a little longer than usual. A soliloquy is the device of having a character speak alone on the stage, giving voice to their own thoughts. Shakespeare uses it quite sparingly in the history plays. Very notably, Richard III opens his own play with one. But in another instance, Prince Hal has one soliloquy only in each of the three plays he dominates. They are all excellent insights into his journey from Prince to King Henry V, but there's just one per play. By contrast, Hamlet has seven. As his playwriting has developed over the years, so has Shakespeare's fascination with this means of speaking thoughts aloud, and of course, of engaging and enthralling an audience. If we assume that the play written before Hamlet was Julius Caesar, we can start to imagine that Brutus, another of Shakespeare's great characters who thinks aloud via soliloquy before making up his mind, starts to feel like a rehearsal for Hamlet. In the play, We've just seen Claudius and Gertrude depart, with the court in tow, and Hamlet has been left alone on the stage. It's worth imagining what the space might look like, a state room, perhaps, with two thrones sitting side by side. These rooms, of course, come alive when they are in formal use, but can feel very empty when abandoned. Such is perhaps the feeling now as Hamlet can finally exhale, whatever snappy behaviour he has exhibited to his uncle and his mother, Now perhaps he can tell us what's really on his mind. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh God, oh God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it. Oh, fie. Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it nearly. That it should come thus. But two months dead. Nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr. So loving to my mother that he might not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must I remember. Why, she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. And yet, within a month, let me not think on it, frailty thy name is woman, a little month, or ere those shoes were old, with which she followed my poor father's body like Niobe, all tears. Why, she, even she, oh, God, a beast that once discourse of reason would have mourned longer, Married with mine uncle, my father's brother. But no more like my father than I to Hercules. Within a month, ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her galled eyes, she married. Oh, most wicked speed to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good. Break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. It can feel rather dramatic to our ears to have the young prince start this thought process with the desire to die, or rather the desire not to be. 
He wishes that his flesh could melt away, resolve itself into a dew. Alternatively, he would consider suicide if it wasn't against God's law. Here, Hamlet's religious beliefs differ from the Romans that kill themselves in other Shakespeare plays. The fifth of the Ten Commandments declares that thou shalt not kill, and this is of course applied to one's own person also. Our language even today still reflects the feeling that suicide is a sin, the only verb immediately associated with it, as with sin and crime, is commit. In fact, it was only in the 16th century that suicides began to be denied a Christian burial. The Church's position on suicide, and burial indeed, crops up at least once more in the play, so it is worth bearing in mind here. It's of course no accident that Shakespeare follows up this little mention of suicide with a cry to God, and an exclamation of despair. How weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Hamlet's frustration is articulating itself as he warms to his theme, working his way through the metaphor of an untended garden where weeds prosper, before getting to the point that it should come thus but two months dead. Nay, not so much, not two. The timing is the problem. A terrible realisation in the process of grief is that not everyone feels it the way that you do. How could they, of course? And, comparably, there's a kind of grim loneliness to the feeling that everyone else is moving on with their lives, happily forgetting those we have lost. Hamlet is horrified that his mother has moved on this fast. Throughout this scene, he makes continued reference to her haste in marrying Claudius. And Shakespeare's writing here is just, it's extraordinary. There are no full sentences, and we can see Hamlet's mind leaping from idea to idea, grasping at thoughts without holding on to them for very long. So excellent a king that was, to this, Hyperion to a satyr. This is the first of several comparisons between Hamlet's father and the new king, reduced even just to this. Claudius never comes off well in these comparisons. Here it is between the god of the sun, Hyperion, and a half-goat mythical creature known for drunkenness and carousing. There are consistent echoes throughout the start of this soliloquy that allow Claudius's exit lines to resonate. We can see Hamlet's brain digesting and diluting them. The canons of the rouse become the canon of the everlasting, the satyr, comparison, is a sharp rebuke of Claudius's drinking. Even the fact that Hamlet picks Hyperion as a reference is, I think, no accident. I fear, my lord, I am too much of the sun, and now we get the god of the sun. The son, as in the child, idolising the father. Maybe this is too much, I don't know, but it's all there to be teased out and enjoyed. Shakespeare really does write this richly. Hamlet continues painting a lovely image of his parents' love. His father was, so loving to my mother, that he might not beteen the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must I remember. Why, she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. She adored him and he adored her, and yet she's moved on this fast. He's disappointed in her, angry with her, embarrassed even. And yet, within a month... Let me not think on it. Frailty, thy name is woman. A little month. A little month, indeed. It's such brilliant, memorable language. I don't think that Hamlet or Shakespeare is necessarily decrying all women in this text, so much as letting off steam that this one woman should have been stronger and more dignified and held her ground in her grief and moved on with less unseemly haste. A little month 
or ere those shoes were old, with which she followed my poor father's body like Niobe, all tears. The reference here to Niobe is interesting. In all of literature, she's the woman most associated with extreme grieving. Her own story was that she bragged about her fourteen children to the mother of Apollo and Artemis, and for her hubris, all of her children were killed. Her grief for them was so sincere and so endless that she became a paragon of mourning in Greek literature, eventually being turned to stone, immortalised as a weeping rock. As such, Hamlet is being pretty sarcastic in likening Gertrude to her. The shoes, he mentions, are presumably made of cloth or soft leather, something delicate, crafted for the funeral, and that would age quickly. Hamlet's thoughts continue to bounce and interrupt each other as he processes his feelings. Why she, even she? Oh God, a beast that wants discoursive reason would have mourned longer. Married with mine uncle, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. A beast that wants discoursive reason would have mourned longer. Hamlet's being pretty tough here, suggesting that even an animal would have had more respect for the dead. Another comparison for King Claudius, who is no more like the dead king than our Hamlet is like Hercules. The first idea that springs to mind here is, of course, the Greek hero who completed the Twelve Labours. Hercules also had a god for a father, and indeed he even had a stepfather of unswerving integrity, Rhadamanthus, the great judge of the dead. The comparison yields even more when we come back to Seneca, the Roman playwright whom Shakespeare has undoubtedly studied, and whose own depiction of Hercules has him going mad and eventually contemplating suicide. These two things, madness and suicide, are constantly on Hamlet's mind, as we'll see in a great many later episodes. I grant that this is a big leap from just one word, but I also maintain that Shakespeare really is this intricate and exuberant in the level of thought and inference he invites. After dazzling us with this third reference in a row to the ancient Greeks, has perhaps Hamlet been reading his classics while pining to return to Wittenberg? He's back to his unseemly gap of time. Within a month, ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her galled eyes, she married. Tears again, and the contrast between Niobe all tears and Gertrude's unrighteous eyes is reinforced. He doesn't come out and say it directly, but is there a hint that maybe he thinks his mother is a fake? How galling to fear that perhaps she didn't love his father. Certainly, she's not showing anything like the love that he himself still feels. And finally, now we get to the biggest thought of them all. Almost oh, wicked speed to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good. He's come out and called it incest. For a brother to marry the widow of his own dead brother was considered incest, according to the Bible. But this was a contentious issue in Elizabethan England, since, of course, King Henry VIII, Elizabeth's father, had done just that and married his own brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. He managed to convince everyone that it was all right to do so when it suited him, but then when he wished to marry Anne Boleyn, who would be Elizabeth's mother, he decided to try to get everyone to believe that it was a sin after all. Hamlet says that it is incest, and worse, that it is not, nor it cannot come to good. This is all getting very interesting now, as we start to see the feelings he's having to suppress while living in this court that is still celebrating this union. 
just as Hamlet is starting to give voice, albeit alone on stage, to some rather dangerous ideas, he has to stop. Someone is coming. But Shakespeare manages to end the soliloquy in all its great frantic glory with a beautiful juxtaposition. But break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. I mean, it's tremendous. The play has been pretty exciting already, with the worries up on the battlements, a ghost wandering around looking for something, a clever new king making his presence felt, and now this passionate explosion of ideas and feelings from our hero. Amazingly, he has started by saying he wants to die. Over the course of this speech, he laments his father, and then, constantly interrupting himself with some extraordinary images, he describes what his mother has done. The beads, very clearly... And yet, within a month, why she, even she, married with mine uncle, my father's brother. He's devastated, he's broken-hearted, he's ferociously intelligent, but he's alone and very much in need of a friend. Happily, there is hope, and we'll see who comes to see him in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening, and do please feel free to share this podcast with fellow listeners you think might enjoy it. There's lots of information available on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, and you can also connect from there to Facebook, to Twitter, and of course to iTunes. I'll be with you again with another episode next week.